Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help Project from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In today's episode, we chat with Kina Aragon about the topic of identity in Christ. For more help on this topic, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Kina Aragon is an author and spoken word artist residing in Tampa, Florida. She has contributed to several books, and her children's book, Love Made, poetically retells the story of creation through a Trinitarian lens of overflowing joy and love. Hey there, Kina. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to learn more about your story. I first became familiar with you through the Gospel Coalition and watching a video of a message that you presented at one of their conferences. And I was just really intrigued by the way that you spoke about your identity as a child and how the Lord helped to shape that as you matured and became a Christian and was just walking with Jesus. So I wondered if you could lead us off today by telling a little bit about your story and how your identity was shaped in your childhood. So I was born in the Philippines with my mom's side of the family and then ended up getting raised in Orlando with my mom and then my dad, who's from Jamaica, and my older sister in Orlando. And so, you know, growing up with the Filipino background, you know, was going to Catholic church, Catholic school for I think it was eight years through elementary and middle school. And as I began to start to ask questions about God and about the truth of the Bible. Didn't feel like I had anybody necessarily pointing me back to the Bible as truth, but rather more so saying things like just have faith or just believe. But if I'm honest, I wasn't really asking from a place of genuine desire to know the truth. I think I just sometimes just wanted to debate as a as a middle schooler. My focus growing up, especially being black in a predominantly white Catholic school, was uh, around middle school time, just wanting to understand where I came from, what was my heritage, what culture was I going to cling to, and being mixed that became complicated just because, you know, growing up, my mom's side of the family is very Filipino and, and also has a Puerto Rican mix as my grandma is from Puerto Rico. And that was the family I was extremely close to. And so I felt more connected to Filipino culture. But outwardly, obviously, I'm I'm black, I'm brown. So I wasn't necessarily seen as Asian or even Hispanic. I was mostly seen and talked about as African-American, and, and which was the culture I wasn't really familiar with. And so around middle school time, wanted to try to get a better idea of my Jamaican roots. And I would try to learn stuff from my dad, try to go listen to Bob Marley or whatever I could to try to feel connected to a sort of identity. And so that was an interesting time because I, I wanted to be truly myself and I wanted to feel like I belonged somewhere. But as many mixed children, children might tell you, you tend to feel like you don't fully belong in any space. I'm not black enough to be black, I'm not Jamaican enough, you know, to be Jamaican. I'm not, you know, Hispanic enough to be seen as Puerto Rican. I'm not, you know, Filipino enough to be seen as Filipino. And so in that uncomfortability of just not really fitting in, in any particular space fully, I, I really sought my identity 
in sports and in academics. And since I excelled in both, uh, it seemed to be going well for me for a while and even into high school. That's when in high school, even experiencing what, you know, in high school scope of success in terms of popularity and doing well in sports and in school and stuff like that, that success really just didn't satisfy me. And so I wanted wanted more and thankfully met a Christian friend who shared the gospel with me eventually. And that's that's really when I began to, of course, see my identity as ultimately in Christ and see my heritage and all of the various ways that God made me as as a gift and not so much as a curse or anything like that. But I think when you're a minority in general, especially as a black or brown minority, you hear ignorant sort of comments about that sort of characterize a whole people group. Uh, you get asked to be the representative of a whole people group. You kind of already know, even if nobody tells you outright, that there's a sense where I have to work twice as hard as everybody else in order to be respected, or I need to succeed twice as much in order for people to know that I have this opportunity, not simply because of people pitying me uh, mm -hmm. or you know feeling bad. And so I think that's since I was a, a kid being a minority and then going into high school where I wasn't a minority anymore, and it was a very mixed high school, I remember playing sports and I just really clearly remember game days where I would just be like, tonight's the night where everyone's going to see that I'm actually horrible at volleyball or I'm actually horrible at basketball. And even though I would do well, or it just would always be this internal battle of they're going to, somebody's going to find me out that I don't belong here. The whole imposter syndrome, like I'm an imposter. I'm not supposed to be here. I wasn't supposed to get this opportunity. And I still deal with that today, but thankfully am a little bit more self-aware about it and, and are a little bit more aware about how Christ views me. Mm -hmm. Well, when you think about the various struggles that you've had in the past with aligning your identity apart from Christ, what were some of the bad fruits that resulted? Just wanting to fit in, being willing to to do compromising things and in terms of just the choices I was making, the the sort of language I was using, the, you know, sexual sin, all kinds of things that I would just do in in order to feel like I belong to this group. Um, and so, you know, it's chasing an idol. It's chasing an idol of of wanting to belong outside of knowing that I belong with Christ and that I belong with the family of God through faith in Christ. And so just a typical peer pressure type of situations. And even I would say bad fruits, I think of not just the things that are obviously bad, but mm -hmm. even the things like just having a pride about myself that I'm better I, and sort of fighting that inferiority complex. I have to prove to myself and to others that I'm actually better, that I'm smarter, that I'm faster, that I'm stronger than them. And that's going to somehow satisfy me. And so even though outwardly doing well in school, doing well in sports isn't a bad thing, but inwardly, a lot of times my heart was in that kind of place where I was seeking glory from those things. It's just so interesting to reflect on teenage and high school years. I'm listening to you talk and I can resonate with parts of your story just because in high school I was not saved. I wasn't a Christian at all. And I was a basketball player. I played varsity basketball. But headed into my senior year, I actually got in a car accident. Someone had ran a stop sign and T-boned my car and totaled it. And I wasn't able to play my senior year of basketball. And it just spiraled me into pretty much one of the most significant depressive seasons of my life. 
And I think looking back now at that time, I have that language to be able to say, yeah, I think part of the reason that, why that was so hard is because I was finding my identity in my athletic performance. And so if I could perform well on the court and people were clapping and I was scoring points and winning championships, then I was worth <laughs> something to someone. Yeah, I think with me, there wasn't like a tragic event that opened my eyes. It was more of having it all and then being like, wait, that's it? Like mm. I have the boyfriend, we were well off, I had recognition, I had all of those things. And yet there was just still such a profound sense of emptiness. And most of the time I stuffed it by, you know, making myself busy and doing more and more and more things to accomplish. But when I actually sat with it, I would just be like, it's basically the book of Ecclesiastes, like it's, mm. it's meaningless. Um, this isn't satisfying. In what ways have Christian community and discipleship relationships helped to keep you rooted in your identity in Christ, especially as someone whose public ministry includes being on the stage as a performer? Well, I'd say definitely in the last maybe four, four or so years, um, being a part of my small group at my church allows for me to be known in a, a much more intimate way than just, you know, on Sunday mornings when you see everybody. So being able to be a part of this small group has been monumental for me because, yeah, I'll get, you know, different opportunities to go travel or go speak in, in a public way, but those people don't get to know me in, in terms of the day-to-day -day struggles and, and things, but my small group has allowed me to kind of have a safe place to be known and not impressive and to just simply serve the sisters in my group and be served by them as we pray for each other, as we encourage each other, as we get in the word together. And just that week to week sort of rhythm in my life has, you know, it might not seem in a moment extremely special to someone who are, you know, stepping in from the outside, but it's actually been one of the biggest things that grounds me and allows me to, to remember really my greatest joy is in discipleship relationships. It's it's in being able to help others follow Jesus more intimately and go deeper in their relationship with him. And by doing that through the small group context, as well as, you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships in my church, that to me is just the greatest joy. I can't even explain that, but it just is much more significant to my soul than than any sort of award or recognition or or even opportunity. Well, building off of that, do you ever get tempted to put a lot of hope or expectation on your ministry as a performer or spoken word artist? What does that struggle look like for you right before you're about to get on stage? For one, I think it's interesting. I've learned that when attention is is pointed at me, I don't necessarily feel safe. Uh, I, I get a little bit emotionally freaked out, and yet God has gifted me uh, with more public gifts. And so I wrestle with particularly doing spoken word live simply just because it's it's a memorized piece. It's, you know, you got to breathe at the right moment and I'll need to turn my body this way at the right moment. It just freaks me out to know that I could completely forget my line up there and not sure where I would take it <laughs> at that point if, if that happens. And so I definitely go through that every single time, even if I'm just performing for five people in my living room, I, I still go through that. Uh, when I'm about to go on, I usually pray. If a friend is there with me or my husband or somebody will pray, and then I will say to myself, I am loved no matter what happens next. 
if I completely bomb this, if I completely mess this up, that doesn't change one ounce of God's love for me. And I also remind myself that it won't change my husband's love for me because that's, a, you know, an earthly thing that's just been a blessing to remember that God's love isn't dependent on my performance. And so isn't it interesting that God has gifted me to perform and yet is constantly using the act of performance to make me remember that it's not about my performance. It's a little bit I guess, paradoxical. But yeah, I have to remind myself, I just think of like Charles Spurgeon, I think used to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit <laughs> as, as he would go up. And I'll either say that or I'll be like, I, I know I'm loved. I know I'm loved and, and remind myself of that. Well, what are some of the other ways we find ourselves attempting to create an identity and a narrative of our own devices? Can you share some examples that can be observed just in everyday living? Sure. I mean, I'll just give myself as an example, just wanting to be seen as competent, wanting to be seen as impressive, wanting to be seen as uh, this, you know, wonderful human being. And it's, it's not a bad thing to want to to live righteously or to want to be exemplary, but it can get to a place of I care so much about what people are saying about me, how people are viewing me, whether or not they're being gracious uh, with with what I said or what might be getting said about me, all of that stuff can really turn into, I think, an idol and can be a thing that I spend way too much energy and time on instead of spending energy and time on knowing Christ and knowing myself loved in Christ and and living in that reality. Instead, I, I waste so much time trying to make sure, at least in my thought life, that everybody is cool with me. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's a waste of time. Thank you. I can definitely relate. I feel like everything you're saying, I'm just having so much comfort from just because it just makes it feel like we these particular struggles are not unique to me. And, you know, even the scriptures tell us that there's no temptation that is not common to man. I want to also ask, I was recently listening to a sermon by Brad Bigney, and he's the author of the book Gospel Treason, Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. And he pointed out that our idolatry consumes our identity. So he was talking about this idea that our false identities are actually being fueled by idols within our hearts. And you alluded to that just a moment ago. But can you interact with that observation of his? How have you seen that at work in your own life? And how does the gospel help to reorient us? Yeah, I mean, in in line with what I was mentioning before in terms of needing approval from people uh, or a sense of needing it, and that, you know, obviously can become an an idol. Um, I've seen that in terms of, I don't know if there's a better term for this, but I'm just going to call it like friendship idolatry or Mm -hmm. relational idolatry maybe is what it's called. But, you know, where and Thankfully, God has done a lot of work in the last few years, but for most of my life, I had experienced, you know, having a best friend that I idolized and, and always, um, there's that inferiority complex, always feeling like they were better than me in, in every way. And so, um, needing their approval, needing them to, to side with me on things. And, you know, a few years ago, the Lord 
really began to reveal that idol in my heart through a painful relational experience with a friend and that I'm now thankful for looking back and being able to see, wow, God, you were, you were showing me that this is not a way to live. I didn't realize how deeply I needed her approval. And that pointed me, you know, by God's grace, I was pointed back to the fact that God's view of me, that what he has spoken about me is true the whole time. And people's opinions can be like a dead fish out of water, just flopping around every which way. And one day they, they love you, the next day they don't. And yet God is there the whole time, like, this is how I see you. And so I've seen just the gospel, the fact that I'm already accepted, already loved by Christ, not because of my works, not because of my performance, that is always reorienting uh, myself when I face a sense of rejection or relational strain. You recently released a beautiful spoken word video for the book Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women by Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Shoemaker. The video is called What's a Woman Worth? And as we talk about the topic of identity in Christ, I wonder if you would comment on the challenges you faced as a Christian woman in particular. Ooh, that's a long answer. But okay, so in short, I think we tend to be aware of the messages that, and maybe I'm being naive by saying this, but I I think we tend to be hyper aware of the false messages that the world is telling us as Christian women. You need to be skinny. You need to be fit. You need to look this way. You have to uh, eat this way, all of those things. And, And I think And those are things that we need to remind each other, certainly, that this is not what Christ values. This is not the ultimate thing that's important. However, I think as a Christian woman, being in uh, many church spaces and, you know, ministry spaces where we are often hearing from the word, I think it's what is not said about what it means to be a woman that can sometimes be a little bit more damaging and and I think has has been for me uh, in many ways. And so reading that worthy book, it's just a tearjerker, especially as a woman realizing, man, there are so many women in scripture that God has used in tremendous ways in the, the story, redemptive history that I just didn't really know about, or that I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on a lot of these women. If anything, they're sort of marginal and not really mentioned. And so I think in a lot of ways, It's what I haven't heard about the way God values women, the way that he has used women, even outside of our own cultural and church cultural understandings of what a woman can be. And so I've found over the years, and this has been changing over the last few years, but I found myself shrinking as a woman and in a sense of, okay, God has given me these gifts to teach, to perform even, and and to encourage and to exhort and to do things that are, are a little bit more vocal. And yet in many spaces felt like that's just not valued if you're a woman. If I were a man, obviously I would be getting intentional training. The goal isn't to be heard or to be put in front of people, but even the opportunities to get training, the opportunities to exercise and walk in the gifts that Christ has given us, which are meant to serve the church. I haven't always seen that opportunity as a woman, if that makes sense. And so it's it's kind of been not always what's been said, and there have been hurtful things that 
have been said and unbiblical things that have been said about what it means to be a woman. But it's a lot of times what's not said in terms of what what are we not seeing in scripture? Even this morning, uh, I've been reading through Luke and isn't it amazing? And I think it's the end of chapter seven where the sinful woman, the woman of the city comes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees are upset about this and, and Christ receives her so so gently. And then right after that passage, it says, and then as Jesus and, and the 12 were going along doing their ministry, it says many women followed him and provided for them out of their own means, uh, provided for Jesus out of their own means. And how often have we really heard this message, you know, from the pulpit or in, in Bible studies, uh, we sort of skim over those passages and and lose sight of what that meant for the original audience where women were even more marginal and perhaps more held in contempt in that time. And so for Luke to pause and be like, this is who made up Jesus's followers, sinful women, women who had reputations, <laughs> women who had means to be able, women who were working, who had means to be able to provide for Jesus and his disciples. And so, sorry, that's a long-winded way of just saying, I think being a Christian woman has had different challenges along with, you know, times where I've said something or proposed a, a change or proposed something in ministry and it, it essentially being ignored. There's a sense of just not being taken seriously. And certainly many women have experienced much, much worse. Many women have been sexually, physically abused within their marriages by leadership within churches and those things being covered up, those things not being taken to the proper authorities, those things, you know, them as victims being shamed for horrible things that were not their fault. And so I know that I haven't faced the worst, but I've seen it happen, you know, and I, I see it happen. And I see in myself some ways that those types of things can be pretty discouraging. Well, you've also recently contributed to a book called His Testimonies, My Heritage, Women of Color on the Word of God. And I had an opportunity to read that book and was so blessed. Are there particular messages or attitudes, either from secular sources or coming from the church, that seem to be unique identity challenges for our sisters of color? I think a lot of times the discussion of whether it's racial reconciliation or even when as a sister of color, and, and of course, when I say that being a sister of color, a woman of color, that means a variety of things and that it doesn't always have the exact same story for every person. But when I, as a woman of color, express challenges not being taken seriously or whether it be racial slurs that happen, th microaggressions, things of that nature, when those things are expressed, a lot of times I think our white brothers and sisters don't always take us seriously and don't always listen or, or show empathy, but are interested in debate and statistics and interested in uh, oftentimes just being right when I think scripture calls us in those moments to weep with those who weep and to seek to listen. If I hear another sister of color share their experience, and if I were a white brother or sister who maybe doesn't have that experience, it doesn't mean that the other experience doesn't exist. 
Well, thank you for just giving some insights on that. I really do appreciate it. And I love how you mentioned the point about just weeping with those who weep, because I think it's true, you know, just having a heart of compassion for people. So I just appreciate you kind of shining a light on some of those things just to help us be, you know, mindful of them so that we can be better lovers of those who we walk alongside in our communities. Well, we've got time for one more question. So I would like to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is relating to what we're talking about. What would you say to that listener to encourage them to cease striving after false identities and to instead remember the gospel as they rest in their status as redeemed, forgiven, accepted, and loved? I think I would want to say, be comforted by the fact that Jesus, when you first cried out to him, he loved you just as much then as he does right now. You've grown, you've likely grown, you've matured in Christ, and Jesus doesn't love you more because of that. So consider, okay, you may realize you have an idol going on in your heart. You have some deep-rooted lie that's existed, and, and maybe God is beginning to uh, unveil that for you. Be comforted to know that this will be a process. Through that process, Jesus is not going to leave you. That maturity isn't some extra spiritual thing outside of running back to Jesus over and over and over again. If you had to think of you know, what's on Jesus's agenda for you as you wake up tomorrow morning, as you woke up today, was it, I hope this lady or this man can shore up all the sin they could think of. I hope they could just get their act together. Is that Jesus's heart or is his heart? I desire for my child to know my love for them and from that want to change and from that be empowered to change. And so know that God isn't giving up on you. He's relentless. He's more committed to your sanctification than you even are. And thankfully, though this is a process, he is not leaving you. Keep running back to him over and over and over and over again, a hundred times over, uh, even for the same thing and know that he receives you just as warmly as he did the last time. Thank you so much for sharing those encouragements. I want to see if there's someone listening who wants to get connected with your ministry. They're really interested to see your spoken word videos and the various books that you've contributed to and that you've authored. Where's the best place where they can connect with you online? Uh, yeah, you can just go on my website. It's Kina, which is spelled Q-U-I-N-A. Aragon, A-R-A-G-O-N.com. I also have a YouTube channel, which I think is just youtube.com slash uh, Kina Aragon, just my name. And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, all of the fun stuff. So yeah, you can just go to my website, though, KinaAragon.com. Well, very good. If you're interested in connecting with Kina, you can click the link in the show notes to access all of her information and get connected and view her videos. So thank you again, Kina, for joining us today for this conversation. I'm just really thankful for your willingness to share and just be vulnerable and transparent with your own walk with Christ. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.